my guest today, Danny Shapiro, is an old friend of mine and of the podcast. She's been on a number of times. She's also a New York Times bestselling author and a really gifted examiner of life, especially her own, really diving into deeply vulnerable insights that always leave me feeling inspired and curious and maybe even um, opening to a bit more of exploring my own life. Her latest book, Inheritance, dropped you into a surprise revelation about who her family was, more specifically, who her dad was, or more accurately, wasn't. That journey led to a bigger uh, sort of a journey of discovery and became the inciting incident for a podcast called Family Secrets that is all about the secrets that families from all walks of life keep. She has now also launched a second daily podcast, The Way We Live Now, that introduces you to the individual stories of people moving through this current global moment together. And through all of it, Danny would also find herself kind of hurtled into her husband's, who's the love of her life's cancer diagnosis and treatment, moving through this surreal experience of celebrating the launch of so much goodness and generative energy in the world, speaking, traveling, and then going back and forth and returning to be with her husband as they both navigated this profoundly difficult time together. The powerful, real, wise, and open conversation that we have about all of this really takes you deep into the entire experience. I'm so excited to share it with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important 
So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Ah, Danny Shapiro. So awesome to be hanging out. We have known each other for a long time now through different permutations and phases of life. Meeting it from what I remembered for the very first time years ago at this small writer salon at the apartment of a writer who I think you knew fairly well. And I was invited through a friend of a friend and felt utterly out of place at this beautiful Upper West Side apartment with all these fancy people who were so much smarter and so much more accomplished than me. And I was so thankful to find you in a corner and just strike up just a great conversation, which for this introvert, I'm pretty sure I did everything I could to keep going for the entirety of the evening. I think we both did. <laughs> I want to talk to you about a couple of things. I mean, we're hanging out now. Um, it's kind of a weird time in uh, in the world, in our space. I'm in New York City and in our studio, you're you're in your home studio, and uh, and a lot has transpired in the last couple of years in your life. And I figured it's a, it's a good time to catch up. When last we we sat down in the studio, we were actually chatting about Hourglass, which was a really cool book. And I want to circle around to that in a different way. Um, in the interim, you made some really big, shocking discoveries about your history. Wrote a book called Inheritance, which lays a foundation for some of the work you've been diving into over the last few years. Also, let's set the scene there. So. Inheritance was a book where you learned a massive family secret and you basically just laid it bare and and the journey that you took to really uncover the details of it. Tell me more about how this transpires and and what really unfolded. Yeah, thanks. And I just want to say it's great to see your face over Zoom or whatever the hell we're doing um, and to get to talk to you about all this. Um, So in the spring of 2016, I as the result of doing a DNA test for no good reason. I mean, I just, my husband was sending away from one and he said, do you want to do it too? And it was a lark. It was like recreational DNA testing. So I, I did. And when my results were returned to me, I discovered something that I had never, ever consciously entertained, uh, ever, never had the thought that my dad who raised me, who was my North Star, who was, um, he died when I was 23. Um, we were, you know, he was, he was the good enough parent. He was kind of the one who saved me. Um, I found out that he had not been my biological father, um, which is something that, again, I had never known. And in fairly short order, I was able to piece together this like mystery of my history. And, you know, I always, all my life felt like there was a secret. There were multiple secrets and there indeed were multiple secrets in my family. Uh, But from the time that I was very small, I was always like, there was something that was eluding me and it eluded me all through my childhood and all through my teenage years and all through my young adulthood, um, even as I built a life for myself. And I started writing books and my books all centered around secrets in some way, my fiction. 
it was all about like sort of family secrets, the corrosive power of family secrets, what we do to each other when we keep things from each other. And all the while, I had no idea that I was the family secret, that my parents, I, I believe, I've come to believe, knew uh, that my dad wasn't my biological father. They had um, been, they had struggled with fertility and had, this is in the pretty early days of infertility medicine. Um, and they had used a sperm donor. And, you know, I, I, you know, like I'm in my early fifties, I've had one set of beliefs and one sense of my own identity all my life. And suddenly it's like tipped over, just upended. And I realize that my biological father was a sperm donor. So there's someone out there in the world who I genetically come from and, and that my dad and his family, who I was very, very connected to in ways that I hadn't realized. I mean, if you had said to me, if you posed a question to me years ago, like, well, I'm not even sure how to, how to put this because I think there was such an identification with my father's family, with my ancestors, with coming from this world of people, from the shtetls of Eastern Europe who came to New York and made good and you know, did good deeds and good works in the world. It was a source of grounding for me that I, quote, came from this family and to suddenly find out that, well, actually, biologically, I didn't, was a really shocking thing. And then to go through this, I mean, I began writing about it right away because that's what I do. It's how I come to understand anything that I feel or think. Uh, I don't know how else to process anything. And there were these really these two twin mysteries that I was trying to unravel uh, and one was, who was this sperm donor? Who was my biological father? Where do I come from? And the other was, what did my parents know? They were both gone. And what did they know? And how consciously did they keep this a secret from me? And how did it form the way that they were with me and the way we were with each other? And so there were these two different like strands of mystery that I embarked on as a journey, as a human being and as a writer that led to the book. Yeah, I mean, it's the type of experience that just shakes you to the core, you know, because the your lineage, especially in your case, because it was so theoretically well-defined and mapped through generations. And it was such, I mean, you've written about before, it, it was such a deeply ingrained part of your family. You know, it was the stories that were told and told and told and defined both your family and you. So to realize that it was, that was not in fact your story, you know, it's got to, to a certain extent, shatter your world. And then, you know, the question becomes, how do I recreate it in what shape and form? And um do I want to? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. Like people have sometimes asked me, like, do you wish you had never found out? And there hasn't been a second 
that I wish I hadn't found out, even when it was excruciatingly painful, even when I was in the early days, I literally felt so dizzy. I thought I was going to faint or fall over. It was like, you know, I would look at my body, I would look at my legs or my hands or my face and think like, who am I? Like, am I, I am who I've always been, but my understanding of who that is has just been challenged. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned is our identities are formed by the stories that we're told from the time that we're very young. And the stories that we tell ourselves are based on those stories, those that we receive. And if those stories are are based on something untrue, then they're forming themselves around something that is not solid, which I do think actually psychologically and emotionally when I look back was a piece of the story of my life. There was something that didn't make sense, but I couldn't put my finger on it. And I didn't feel that it was earned, this sense that I had from the time I was very small of being an outsider, of not fitting in, of something just not being quite right or adding up. And when on paper, everything that I was told, everything that I knew coming from this family, this sense of belonging, I didn't understand why I had those feelings. And when you're a child and you have that that feeling of something's wrong with the way I'm feeling, a child turns it against herself, which is, I think, what I did from the time I was really small because I had no way of of understanding why I felt the way that I did. And, you know, it's one thing when we're raised in a biological family, we think we are, and our mothers are biological mother, our fathers are biological father, our grandparents, our cousins, our aunts, our uncles. We, I think, really take it for granted. This, um, it's it, it goes without saying, this sense of, I walk like my aunt does, or I smile like my cousin, or um, we have this familiarity between us. It's not something that biological families tend to even think about. Why would we? But it's there and it's very present. If we're raised in a non-biological family and we know that, as in adoptees, in adoptive families, then we know why we don't have that feeling. Uh, it's got nothing to do with love, let me just be perfectly clear, but we know why we don't have that feeling of familiarity because there isn't that biological connection. And that can present its own sets of challenges. And there's this beautiful term that I came across in adoption literature, which is genealogical bewilderment. You know, this sense of, well, where bewilderment, where do I come from? But but you know why you feel that way. But if there's something that's not true, that is embedded into a family's culture the way it was with mine, where I believed my parents were both my biological parents, but my dad wasn't, then there's something that's kind of invisibly always forming. I think I was always working over time to try to understand. Like, for example, I was raised in an observant Jewish home. I was told every day of my life that I didn't look Jewish. Every day, Jonathan, every day. And people felt moved to comment on this. Everyone 
from strangers to walking into a building and, you know, signing in and the security guard, you know, what Shapiro, your married name? I mean, like really people would just feel completely comfortable telling me that I didn't look like who I knew myself to be. Which of course now makes an infinite amount of sense to me because one of the many things I discovered is that my biological father, the young man who was the sperm donor, is of French and English and Irish and Swedish and German descent, which is what I look like. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing to have all of those cues around you the whole time and just kind of blowing them off because you're like, well, there is no basis for which you could draw upon to in any way infer that they were signaling something to you. There was just no reason for you to to make that connection. And yet when this one penny drops, everything makes sense. But you brought up something else, which I think is really powerful also, which is this idea that, okay, so that was one, you know, like that was one part of your exploration. That was one of the big questions that pops into your mind. But you also have this other question, which is, okay, so if it it's really looking like my parents knew how actively did they work to keep this from me? And what does that say about the nature and quality of our relationship? That's beautifully put, and that's exactly right. I, you know, at the beginning of this exploration, I was convinced that this institute where my parents went to to do this donor insemination, I was convinced that they must have fooled my parents. They must have lied to my parents. Um, that there's no way that my parents would have known this and kept it from me because that was the most comfortable place to begin was all three of us were in the dark. Wow, what a tragedy that we we just, none of us ever knew and it was kind of working on all of us in some subtle, invisible way. But you know, I, I began doing research. I did this deep dive into the history of reproductive medicine in this country and around the world. And I started doing it right away because I was aware that anyone who might still have information specifically about my parents or about that time was going to be elderly if they were still alive at all. And I could not get one single solitary person on board with me with the theory that my parents didn't know. Not one. Not the elderly rabbis I talked to, not my father's own sister who was in her mid-90s when I spoke with her. She didn't know. She never knew about it. I mean, but she believed that my father would have known. The experts, the doctors, the um, the people who know a great deal, scholarly people about that time, no one was getting on board the my parents didn't know train with me. And so then I had to think, well, what was the culture in the early 1960s? What did it mean to be a childless couple? There was no such thing as childless by choice, right? The you know 1950s, post-war America into the early 1960s, pre you know Vietnam and and you know unrest was a time of just building families and of you know Ozzie and Harriet and you know 1962 or 63, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? opened on Broadway. Like that was the depiction, like Edward Albee's George and Martha were like the cultural depiction of what a childless, miserable couple would be like together. And 
male infertility was so shameful that it didn't exist. You couldn't get a doctor to even test for it. So a couple dealing with infertility, and especially a couple in the observant Jewish world, where the commandment, be fruitful and multiply, was like everything, um, there was a great deal of shame involved. And then you combine with the shame, the way that what I learned was couples would be told things in a very slant kind of way. They would be told that this is a treatment, donor sperm. Donor, the words donor sperm would never have been used. This is a treatment. It will help boost your chances. You know, so the image that I started having is like, I was like, I don't know anything about football, but like a football game where like the quarterback is like being, you know, like sort of like running through, there's this not very good sperm of the intended father, but all the young sperm around him is going to like push him over the, you know, field, whatever. I don't, I shouldn't have gone down the football imagery route that I can't take all the way to its metaphorical conclusion. But, um, what I came to really understand or believe is that if a couple wanted to forget that they ever had done this, the atmosphere was created to allow them to go into a place of profound dissociation or denial. And I think that my mother was somebody who was much less of a realist than my father. She was someone who would really bend reality to her will in a lot of different ways. And I think from the moment that my mother became pregnant, she decided that I was my father's biological child. I don't think she could have handled anything else. I don't think she could have handled being pregnant with the sperm of someone who she knew nothing about. So I think she decided that this was the case. And I believe that my mother could have passed a polygraph if asked the question. When my son was born at Mount Sinai, the same hospital in New York City where I had been born, my mother came in, he was hours old, and I was holding him in my arms, and she looked down at him and she said, he looks just like a Shapiro. And she meant it. My dad, he heard all the same comments all my life as I heard. Oh, she doesn't look Jewish. You know, what did Irene have an affair with the Swedish milkman? My dad knew. That's what I believe. I'll never know for sure. Um, this has been an incredibly interesting lesson for me in having to accept and embrace uncertainty. You know, after a lifetime of narratives that I was writing and storytelling and always searching for an understanding of who my family was and who I was within my family and creating all sorts of narratives that were only partially true. I've had to spend the last few years thinking, this is what I think, this is what's very likely, but I'll never know for sure. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. 
Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Yeah, I mean, what a fascinating place to be in because as you mentioned, you know, when we were just starting, both of your parents were gone when you discovered this. So even if they were open to sitting down and having that conversation with you, even if they were willing to be completely honest and transparent in that season of life for them, where they kind of had nothing to lose, you just, you never had the opportunity to have that. So the closest you can get to truly knowing, you know, is still never 100%. It's like, this is all evidence points to dot, dot, dot. Exactly. And just knowing that there is no way that 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 is the answer for all intents and purposes. There's no better than that. And getting comfortable with that has got to be kind of a fascinating experience. I mean, and then this experience, like you said, you were writing from the beginning because that's partly how you think and process. This ends up turning into a book, which goes out into the world. You know, inheritance becomes this giant phenomenon and people are responding to it and reading it. And, you know, I, I, I wondered sometimes when um, knowing you for a while and then seeing what happened when the book came out, whether 
part of the experience of the book going out into the world was in a way, not just a, an act of creation for you, but a way to place something into the social conversation that would maybe plant a seed to see if other people were feeling the same way, discovering the same things. And maybe if you couldn't get an answer, if there was no 100% certainty about your parents, at least you could know that you're not alone in living in this space. That is so exactly right. It's been this amazing journey since the book came out. And I didn't know. I mean, we never know, right? I mean, I, from the very first event, uh, which was in New York City at a little bookstore on the Upper East Side, which was like standing room only and people on and outside not being able to get inside in this crazy, beautiful crowd of people. And I spoke about the book and I gave a reading. And then during the Q&A, the very first hand that went up was a young man and he sort of hijacked my event. He 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 turned around and he said to the to the crowd, he said, So how many people here have had DNA discoveries? And I was so taken aback. I was and I and then but then I looked out at the crowd and these hands were going up. And I thought, oh my goodness, what's what's happening? I mean, the book hadn't even been out a day. How did people even know to come? And then this really amazing, beautiful thing began to happen as I started going on tour. And the tour kept growing and growing and growing. I was on the road for over a year. And everywhere I went, that's what happened. There was this sense that gathering was happening of people who were making all different kinds of discoveries because of this incredibly potent combination of easy, accessible, relatively inexpensive DNA testing and the internet. There was just this outpouring of people. I mean, every it seems like just about every family is touched, maybe not in the first degree, but in in you know, sort of a few degrees of separation by some version of, you know, I mean, I, well, another thing that happened is I would look out into an audience and I would see there would be elderly men in the audience. And I would think, this isn't my demographic. Like, sir, why are you here? And then there would be people in the audience that I started being able to, as I would be speaking and reading, I was also silently identifying to myself, oh, you and you and you. I could tell it was like something was radiating off of these people that I recognized. And then there would be couples sitting there who were looking a little tense or stricken or, you know, holding hands. And what I realized was that men who had donated sperm were showing up, that couples who had made the decision not to tell their children, and now it seemed like maybe they were rethinking that decision, they were showing up. And then people who had made these discoveries themselves, either discovering a half sibling or, um, discovering that they were adopted and had never been told, fathers who had children they never knew about. And I mean, there's so many different kinds of discoveries. And, you know, it, it made me think, not that long ago, I had a conversation with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk about trauma. He's somebody that I reached out to 
in the early days after I made my discovery, we had a mutual friend and he was very kind to me and we spent some time talking uh, because I recognized that what had happened in this discovery was a trauma. It was like literally on the level of like the trauma was me. Like not, it wasn't an outside trauma. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't an attack. It wasn't something I witnessed. It was literally me. My, I was the trauma. And what do you do about that? And um, and one of the things that Bessel talked about, and he talks about in his great book, The Body Keeps the Score, is that one very powerful way to heal from trauma or through trauma or people who do well kind of moving through it are those who are able to take action, who aren't, you know, pinned down by it, either metaphorically or literally. And when I was rereading Bessel's book, I thought to myself, oh, that's what this year plus book tour was for me. Every single day I was taking action and I was experiencing the tangible results of people coming up to me. You know, like one young man came up to me and he said, my father told me last week that he wasn't my biological father. He read your book and he told me and he sent me in his stead to say thank you to you. Like, what do you do with that, right? Like it was, the stories are so moving. I've had people writing to me or coming up to me and saying, I think I may need to tell my children. I've had therapists say to me, how do I help my patients who are, who haven't told their children or have young children and they're on the fence about telling them? To which my response these days is just simply, well, they're going to find out. Like, let's just remove all judgment or the, you know, the moral or ethical questions around it. It's just simply the case now that this kind of secret, which has always, always existed since the beginning of humanity, can't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is, there are too many points of inquiry to not discover it in some way, shape, or form. And that's brand spanking new in the context of our lives. Um, I mean, I wonder also if as you're starting to see, oh, this, this book is actually turning into something different, not different, but something bigger, whether there was a moment or whether there came a time where you had any concern, whether you're starting to say, okay, so this book is also inciting certain decisions and actions in absolute strangers. That was never the intention when you were writing it. And yet these things will very likely profoundly change the nature and structure of relationships and families indefinitely. Did there ever come a time where you kind of felt the weight of obligation or responsibility in connection to any of that? I felt that and feel that when people ask me for specific advice and they are people whose circumstances I don't know, I'm pretty comfortable saying that I think that these kinds of secrets ultimately are best to come out. I've never met a single person who wishes that they didn't know, uh, no matter how difficult the discovery might be. But 
the how and the when of that are very delicate and extremely individual questions. And, and they don't only affect the people who have kept the secret and the person from whom the secret was kept. They also affect other family members and um, have ripple effects in a whole variety of ways. What I would say though, though, is that there was, I mean, my, my book made me the person who was hearing more about this than anyone else in the country or probably the world. But I never positioned myself or ever thought of myself as an expert about it. I feel like I'm an expert about the interior of this experience. I mean, it's very moving to me when I hear from people who were donor conceived or very often adoptees who say, or, or parents of adoptees or donor conceived people saying, you articulated this experience. Like I feel less alone or I understand my child's experience or I understand my sibling's experience because of reading your book. Now that to me is the work of literature and you know, like piercing that sense of separateness, creating an empathic connection or understanding. But I never, I mean, I've been challenged several times now at various events by the donor conceived community, like be our leader, you know, like lobby, you know, run for office. And it's like, guys, I'm a writer. I took the, with the tools that I have and the way of being that I, you know, that I, that, that is my way of being in the world. This is what I could make out of my experience. And, you know, but it's, it's funny, Jonathan, like for years now, ever since my memoir devotion came out, I've been writing books that it turns out help people that I didn't set out. I've never written self-help, but I've written books that end up helping people when my intention as I'm writing them is to make this really deep self-inquiry and do it in a way that will connect with others. Um, I mean, when I was writing Inheritance, one of the thoughts I had all the way through, and it contradicted something that I've always told my students, which is you really shouldn't think about what's universal in your story as you're writing it. But in the case of Inheritance, I actually needed to think about what was universal because the details were so outsized and bonkers and not relatable to a lot of people. Like nobody necessarily sits down and thinks, I'm going to train my mind on the question of what it would feel like to discover suddenly that one of my parents or both of my parents weren't my biological parents. Like, what would that be like? Why would anybody do that? So I had to, I had to find a way to think like, what are the big universal questions here? Like this has been, the story has been laid in my lap. You know, it's like, it's, it's the story of my existence. What is it here to teach me? And what can I teach from it? Yeah. And it seems like that also, rather than the release of the book and the completion of this giant tour around it being sort of the completion of the experience for you it was the inciting incident for something 
very different, um, very new, because you end up shortly after that stepping into the world that I've existed in for a while, the world of podcasting, launching this this podcast, which again has become this amazing sort of phenomenon called Family Secrets, which then kind of picks up the baton saying, okay, so if I'm seeing so many people when I'm traveling around the world for a year, having secrets around this one sort of aspect of, you know, like what, what you know, the, the genetics or the origin story around me, I wonder what other secrets are out there and how many people are carrying them. Um, I'm curious to know a little bit more about sort of the origin story behind family secrets because in part, because I'm just curious, but in part also because I, I have known you for a long time as what I would call a writer's writer. You know, you, like, that is your jam. You write. You don't just write to, to convey. You write because you are madly passionate and in love with the craft of language and, and self-inquiry and revelation. And so I'm fascinated, I guess, from the, the maker's standpoint of the decision also to say, let me step into this completely different creative domain and also expand the inquiry to something much broader. Yeah, you know, it wasn't a decision. Let me start with that. I don't think I've ever made a good move in my life that's been based on a decision. You know, like a, like a sort of, this would be a good idea. You know, I've been on your podcast before and other podcasts. Never once did I have in the back of my mind, I'm like, ooh, I want to do that. I want to start my own podcast. I've loved, you know, I love listening to them. I live in the country. I drive a lot, usually. Uh, you know, I, I, I love listening to great storytelling, but never, never did that occur to me. What happened was I finished Inheritance. It was in manuscript. It was, you know, really put the finishing touches on it. And as with every book of mine, I always have a few early readers. And in the case of Inheritance, one of my early readers was my friend Sylvia Borstein. And, you know, for your listeners who don't know Sylvia, first of all, you should all just stop and go look her up. She is in her 80s and she is a great teacher of mindfulness, meditation, um, and an author of a whole bunch of books. And she's become a really dear friend over the years. And she knew a great deal about the story because she was someone who I had lunch with within a couple of days of when I made the discovery about my dad. I was in San Francisco and that's she lives in the Bay Area and we had had a lunch date, which was kismet because I can't think of anyone I would rather have had lunch with at that moment in my life when I was like ready to keel over than Sylvia. She was enormously comforting. So anyway, I gave her the manuscript and we set a phone date and we were on the phone and she was talking to me about the book. And that prompted her to tell me a story of a family secret of hers. And she's a absolutely marvelous storyteller and she's got a great voice. And I was on the other end of the phone listening to her and thinking, oh, I wish I was recording this. I wish everybody could hear this. It's such beautiful storytelling. And then I got off the phone when we were done and the thought just floated through my mind, podcast. I wonder if there's a podcast about family secrets. And this is maybe more into the weeds than we necessarily need to go, but 
at my my publisher has a department of a couple of editors who work with authors on ancillary projects and it's a department I hadn't even known about, but they had recently approached me about an online teaching opportunity. And it was something I wasn't interested in doing. And I think everybody was kind of disappointed that I didn't want to do it. So I had in my mind, well, they're there if I ever want to come back to them with some other idea. So I s- sent them a note. We had a meeting. And that's that's just how it began. But then when I actually started creating it, this was, again, a kind of kismet happy accident kind of situation, which is, I just think, how so many amazing things happen in our lives when we don't dismiss the thought. You know, it's like Emerson's essay on self-reliance. You know, we don't dismiss the thought because it's ours. And I didn't dismiss the thought, nor did I think I had any idea how to do it. I started listening to more and more podcasts. I started thinking, what kind of podcast would I want to create? What kind of storytelling? And the kind of storytelling that involves a conversation with a guest and then scripting something around that conversation felt to me natural. I thought, oh, I think I know how to do this. I think I know how to, because it feels like space holding in a way, doing that kind of storytelling, holding someone's story. And I've done that as a teacher for many years. So it didn't feel like a tremendous leap in terms of, um, well, it did. I mean, it was certainly a huge on-ramp and a little terrifying, but it also felt like, all right, I think this feels like a really interesting creative challenge. And Sylvia was coming East for a few days and she was actually staying with us at our home in Connecticut. And the people that I do the podcast with sent a sound engineer to my basement where I'm sitting here talking with you right now. And Sylvia and I had a long conversation. And then that actually became one of the episodes in the first season of Family Secrets. So that's how it began. But as you're asking me, it's such a good question what you ask. I think I think I also felt that inheritance was the end of something for me. It was the end of a cycle of work that had involved digging excavating from my early novels. Like if I look at my early novels, which is something I find quite painful to do, but when I do, there is a trail of breadcrumbs throughout my work in some way embedded in my work of a young woman who like doesn't know something, trying like hell to figure it out. And then when I started writing memoirs, my first memoir, Slow Motion, then Devotion, then even in my little book about the writing life, still writing, there's just their clues in there. I was digging and digging and excavating. And then my shovel just hit, you know, pay dirt. It just hit the, the, you know, the penny dropped, as you said, and there it was. And the answer to, to everything that I had been in some way confused by, I mean, I had a good, solid, contented life, but there was something that was missing and there was like some piece that I always felt unsettled about. And that's, I think it may even very well be what turned me into a writer, you know, that exploration. And so inheritance felt like the end of something. So when I'd be on tour and somebody would say to me, 
what are you working on? <laughs> Every writer's least favorite question, but what are you working on? I'd be like, this, I'm, I've been to, I've done a hundred events in the last year. That's what I've been working on. But it was more than that. It was like, actually all bets are off. I have no idea what my next book will be. Will I go back to fiction? Will I write poetry? Will I write another memoir? Will I write a collection of essays? I don't know, but whatever I do, it's not going to be a continuation, I don't think. I think that there's a line of demarcation that has happened. And so this wasn't a conscious thing for me, like, oh, now I'll go make a podcast because I have, I need some breathing room. But that is what happened. And then the other thing that happened in terms of usefulness, in terms of community, in terms of connection, is that because I was approaching these episodes and these guests of Family Secrets very much with a me too. Like I'm not, I'm not approaching this simply out of curiosity. I'm approaching this as someone who has kind of become a student of secrets and their power, or was always a student of secrets and their power without knowing why. So that's been, I mean, whether I'm in person or on the phone with a guest, it feels sacred to me. I wonder if you feel that way too. I'm guessing you do. I do. I, I absolutely, I feel like there's, um, it's interesting. I mean, you and I have known each other a long time, so I, there's a certain amount of ease and comfort we have with each other. So, you know, the fact that we're sitting in our respective studios, you know, connecting through video, I think makes it, it's a more comfortable, easy, like we can kind of hit the ground running together. Normally, you know, for six years, we always tape, you know, in, in our studio and we're just sitting in a chair across from somebody. And it's so much easier to create the container, to create that, that sense of we're in something special together. There's safety in the walls here. You know, there's a sense of intimacy and trust. Um, it is, it's sacred to use your word. It's, it's very much that, um, yeah, and, and it's something that it's, it's been interesting to, it's a new creative constraint to work to see if I can create that same thing, you know, when we're actually not in the same room together. It's been, it's been kind of fascinating, but I, I completely resonate with this idea of you, of that, that book being not the close of a chapter, but the close of a season, Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and you stepping in, like just very organically finding your way into this you know, okay, so it just feels really interesting to me to step into this new channel of exploration and discovery and sharing in the world of audio and creating in a completely different place, learning that space also, and continuing to tell stories that expand beyond your story. But you at the same time get to learn and grow. And there's a bigger backdrop to this whole thing because um, as you're doing this, you know, you sort of, you know, you're stepping away and you're building this incredible new storytelling vehicle. And the book that you had written before, Inheritance, was a, was a, a, a really sweet small book called Hourglass, which was about your reflection on a 20 year or so marriage with your husband with these beautiful time shifting vignettes that I love. And it felt like, you know, you wrote that because, well, you know, this feels like a good time for, I've been through a lot. It's been an, an, an incredible, beautiful journey. It's not over. I want to keep growing into this relationship, but it feels like a, you know, a good time for me to reflect on this and share some experiences, not knowing that you were 
about to step into a very different phase of your relationship because of a diagnosis that would come his way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to go back to Sylvia Borstein for a second, Sylvia once said something to me. It was when Devotion was just coming out and I was very nervous. I was about to go do TV. And she said, sweetheart, you've written a book about what you know now. And at the time that Sylvia said that, we're, we're talking 2010, I thought, oh, I, what a great piece of dharma. I think I know what she means. I think she means that I'll know a little more later. You know, we'll, you know, if we keep on waking up to another day and we have our eyes open and we're witnessing the world, you know, we'll keep learning. And then, yeah, you know, there's, I, there are these moments in Hourglass. Michael and I had been married 18 years at the time that I was writing the book and there's this refrain about 18 years and the various things that have happened over the course of 18 years and, you know, the losses and the, you know, the beauty and the terror to quote Rilke. And, you know, I've also written a lot, I wrote a lot about this in Devotion about thinking like some kind of magical thinking that by naming catastrophe, by naming disaster, by having the thought of it, uh, you could stave it off. You know, I'm a hypervigilant Jew, what can I say? And so, you know, I would have all these various different kinds of thoughts about things that could happen or go wrong. I mean, not plagued by them, but just, you know, pretty sure that I was checking all the boxes. And for whatever reason, when I would think about what if I ever lost my beloved husband, I never thought cancer, not once. Like it just wasn't on either of our radar, which is of course ridiculous. It's probably the most common killer, but I never thought it. And in just about exactly a year ago, he was diagnosed really out of the blue with very serious cancer. And it happened almost, let's see, uh, it was January that inheritance came out and exploded. And it was March, mid-March, when he was diagnosed. And so suddenly, a diagnosis like that makes everything stop, shifts everything to the most elemental, what needs to be done next, you know, entirely in this kind of mode of survival and fear and a brand new language and a really steep learning curve and, you know, educating oneself and launching into that world, which was the world of how are we going to save him? And we're not in control and all of these decisions that needed to be made. And also on the other side of that split screen, having this massive success at the same time was, I'm think, I think it's gonna take me years to completely metabolize that. There's a, you know, the, the idea that a, an incredibly joyful thing and an incredibly terrifying thing can't coexist. They coexisted, they coexisted within the space of the next seven months where we moved into New York, we borrowed an apartment from friends. There were some really miraculous things that happened, like friends with an empty 
apartment that they weren't using in New York, a very comfortable uh, apartment where we could be and where our son could be, choosing doctors, choosing surgeons. My husband went through really harrowing chemotherapy, uh, followed by radical surgery. And all the while, I was taking care of him and like zipping off for three days and going and putting on nice clothes and standing in front of an audience and and doing my thing. And I had to really think about this. And this is the first time I'm really talking about it. I had to think transparency, honesty, being real, being authentic, being vulnerable. Those are my superpowers. I don't know how to be in the world if I'm not doing those things. I don't know how to be in front of people if I'm not being those things. And that was going to mean that I needed to be somewhat public about my husband being sick, which was not my instinct or nature. My instinct and nature was batten down the hatches, close the doors, let's figure this out, let's keep it to our most intimate inner circle. And then at some point, it was serious enough and and you know big enough, large enough that both of us just became aware, like, that's not what we're doing here. This is, you know, there was this feeling of, you know, not wanting to be that couple, not wanting to be that family, you know, not wanting to be, oh, gosh, you know, feeling people's compassion, pity, sorrow for us. I didn't want it because I didn't want, I didn't want it to be happening. I didn't want it to be, I, I, I didn't want my husband to have cancer. I didn't want us to be where we were, but that's where we were. And, and so I would then, so I kind of announced it on Instagram and the outpouring of kindness and of people, you know, just, I mean, sometimes I would be getting up and be about to do an event and someone would say, how's, how's your husband doing? And it would be like it would pierce the veil of, wait a minute, right now I got to go up there and be public Danny Shapiro, but public Danny Shapiro and Danny, whose husband is very sick, are the same person right now. And I can't separate them because if I completely separate them, then I'm not being me. And that's just been the most incredible lesson. I mean, I feel like the Velveteen Rabbit at this point in terms of just like... I'm so worn thin from it, but it's also so profoundly liberating, like all of it. My friend Karen Russell said to me recently, like, that DJ up in the sky just has a lot of a lot going on for you, lady. Like, but you know, I made this discovery about my dad. I wrote this book, the book blew up, my husband got sick. He's better and he is considered cured. Um, he had, you know after surgery, there was no cancer left in his body. And of course he has to continue to be monitored and checked, but exactly a year to the day of his diagnosis was March 11th. And on March 11th of this year, that was the day that I think most of us in the States would say that COVID-19 hit home. And my husband was in LA 
directing a movie, a project that he's been struggling with and working on, a passion project for the last six years that had come together in this magnificent way with this amazing cast, this independent film, like just suddenly just caught lightning in a bottle. And he's there making the movie. And I remember on on the 11th, early in that day, writing a post saying it's a year since uh, since his diagnosis and what an amazing difference a year makes. And then that night, COVID-19 came home. And now here we are hunkered down in our, in our homes, all of us, and the whole world is in pain. I, I was speaking with a friend of mine about this just the other day, this, this sense of when, when it's something that's happening in your family, that's very, or, or to you, this feeling that the world is going on, you know, everyone is continuing to laugh and to dance and to dine and to party and to make things and your world has stopped which is very much the feeling that I had, even though my world didn't stop, it felt like it did. Um, now all of our worlds have stopped. Like we are, we are all in this together. And there's something that's so incredibly powerful about that too. I mean, this, I don't know what to make of the symmetry of it, just in terms of my own journey and my own, you know, karma, but there's a loss of innocence that is different than I think any other kind of loss. I mean, I've lost my parents. I had a son who was very sick as a baby, but he survived and thrived. I can't imagine what it would be to lose a child, um, or I can, and I think it's the worst loss there is. Um, I think we would all agree on that. But when your partner is very sick, it's like it's happening to you too. There's no getting away from it. It's happening to the organism of the two of you who have been together for decades. It's happening in the soft tissue in the interior of your marriage. And this will now forever be, you know, in my first memoir, Slow Motion, I write about this before and after moment of getting a phone call that my parents had been in a car accident. And I write about it as a young writer, as this, you know, this, the moment that my life divided into before and after. I was young enough to not know that it would happen again and it would happen again and it would happen again. And, you know, now at this point in my heading into my late fifties, I've had four of them, my parents' car accident, my son's illness, my husband's illness, and learning about my dad, um, that I would call real moments of deep internal vibration and shift. Yeah. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. 
When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You pretty much addressed it. I I was curious, you know, coming, literally coming out of the experience with Michael as you and the rest of the world and the country were stepping into this collective experience. And there's no way to answer this, but I was, I was curious, you know, how emerging from the experience that you, that you just had and reflecting on it, contemplating it, em- embracing it, uh, like trying to look at how that is, has shaped you and changed you. Um, and then stepping into this new moment that we're all collectively in, whether you experience what we're all in differently than you would have had it happened a year earlier. And again, there's no way for either of us to answer that, but I'm slightly fascinated by the question. Yeah, I am too. Um, a couple of things come to mind. When Michael was sick, I couldn't meditate. My meditation practice of many years, my yoga practice, my yoga practice went out the window when I made the discovery about my dad, and it has not fully returned to me. And I think it has a lot to do with literally like this body that unrolled the yoga mat. Who is this body? I was wrong about this body. Like, what what is my connection to this body? And but my meditation practice, which has been really a, a, a sacred habit, I had a really hard time sitting. And I found some meditations I could listen to 
instead of sitting in silence. Thich Nhat Hanh was enormously helpful to me. I'm very grateful to Thich Nhat Hanh. But the discipline eluded me and the benefits eluded me. And I have found since in the 30 plus days of you know, being isolated with my family at home, that my meditation practice is sacred to me. That, I mean, it, it's always been sacred to me, but it's, it's I, I count on it. I, I can't live without it. There's something about the being thrust so completely into the present moment because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know the world that we're going to be entering back into when this period of time of social distancing and isolation ends. We don't know what that world is going to look like. I think that's one of the things that's most challenging to many of us and certainly to me. But there's also, you know, I mentioned that Michael was on a film set. So as we were sort of heading toward the days of this becoming more and more real, closer and closer to home. You know, we have a writer's conference that meets every spring in Italy. We realized in late February that that wasn't going to happen and canceled it and unraveled it and undid it. Um, it was starting to come closer to home. And at the same time, my son was in Europe, gallivanting all around, having the time of his life. My husband was in the thick of the most fantastic creative experience of his life, like truly a dream come true for him, something he's worked so hard on. And I was traveling still, but also alone at home and starting to read the news more carefully and starting to worry and starting to hear more about social distancing and the importance of it. And the feeling that I had especially in the case of my husband, was would it be safer for him to shut this whole thing down and come home? He's at higher risk because he, because of his immune system, because of chemo. Yeah, it would be safer. Am I going to suggest that? Hell no. Hell no, I'm not. Because if, God forbid, something happens to him, he contracts covid because he was still out there in the world. He was out there in the world doing what he loved most and really like fulfilling a dream that most people at this point in life don't get to fulfill and being his fullest self. And I really had a kind of peace with that that's very unlike me. And I had it a little bit less so for my son because I think he'll have more opportunities to gallivant around around Europe. But I did have this feeling of, you know, let's let's just keep an eye on this and see what happens. But it wasn't coming from this place of like fear, terror. It was really looking at, all right, um, where are we today? And taking each day, each hour, each moment as it as it came, which I think the last year taught me a lot about doing. I mean, even the whiplash between being in the hospital and caring for a very sick spouse and being on the road and in these remarkable you know, circumstances, like the whiplash of those things, I was able to be like, all right, for this hour, I'm standing on stage at the Aspen Institute. 
And for this hour, I'm going to completely inhabit this hour and bring it. I brought myself to every single public engagement. I performed at the height of my capacities. I wasn't diminished when I was up there on that stage because I was there for that hour. And then at the end of the hour, my husband was still sick and I was getting on a plane and coming home and I was there with him at his bedside and 100% there in that fear and in that advocacy and that you know anxiety but it like i had to i had to slice my life and my sense of time and reality into these very small like pieces of a pie and be in whatever that was and so i think that that may be enabling me to be in what this is a little i mean i'm not comfortable but a little more comfortably than i might have been without that experience yeah, what's so interesting about what you just shared also is that um, what you're effectively describing was almost daily moments of forced hyperpresence, which is functionally meditation. And the fact that you lost your seated practice during this same window when you gained a circumstantial mandate to be hyperpresent as you're sort of like, you know, rapidly switching states. It almost makes me wonder if, in fact, you you just transitioned. It, it showed up as something different during that window of time. I love that. That see, that feels so right to me. It was everything felt like a meditation. I mean, I don't like to fly. I was flying every day, getting on the plane, setting myself up with my, you know, my AirPods and my reading and my essential oils and all my little talismans. I mean, that was its own. Yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't sitting in lotus position with my eyes closed in my you know, on, on my cushion in the exact place that I like to be, but everything was, even the speaking, even the speaking itself was a, like, it was a form of service. And I think I did enter these meditative states where, and in, and in terms of the hyper-focus, hyper-presence that's required when you're making what really can turn out to be life or death decisions about treatment, about doctors, about surgeons, about hospitals, um, yeah, there was like a, a laser like focus to just about everything during that period of time. So that's really interesting. And a very gentle way of looking at it is that it didn't, it didn't leave me. It just, um, it's it shape-shifted. It shape-shifted. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This feels like a good place for, uh, for us to come full circle too. I've asked you this question before, but it was a number of years ago now. So as I have found um, with guests who come back over a window of time, sometimes the answer changes, which is in this container of the Good Life Project. If I offer the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? Kindness, awareness of love, presence. There's this Hebrew Sabbath prayer that I've kept tacked over my computer for many years. And the beginning of it goes like this, days pass and the years vanish and we walk sightless among miracles. So I would like to not walk sightless among miracles. Mm, thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks also to our fantastic sponsors who help make this show possible. You can check them out in the links we have included in today's show notes. And while you're at it, if you've ever asked yourself, what should I do with my life? We have created a really cool online assessment that will help you discover the source code for the work that you're here to do. You can find it at sparkatype.com. That's S-P-A-R-K-E-T-Y-P-E. Or just click the link in the show notes. And of course, if you haven't already done so, be sure to click on the subscribe button in your listening app so you never miss an episode. And then share, share the love. If there's something that you've heard in this episode that you would love to turn into a conversation, share it with people and have that conversation. Because when ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change takes hold. See you next time.